How's the condition of your own heart? How's the condition of my heart before the Lord today? Have you found that living in this world has had a hardening effect upon your heart? Be careful. God may be binding up, making firm the condition of your heart. Then again, the hardness of this world can actually soften us toward the things of God. And that's a very good place to be. Such hearts are ripe for the mercies of God. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Last week, I had verses 14 through 18 all prepared in my notes, and I didn't realize how long I'd already went. You guys probably did, but... I kind of don't always catch that. And so I kind of put the brakes on the third point. I, I began to get into it, but I didn't get all the way into it. And so we're going to begin today with verses 14 through 18. A little bit of a review of what we looked at last week, but we're going to get a little deeper into it than what we did look at last week. And we're going to discover that the path of God's mercy has been paved by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. As we begin to look a little deeper into God's sovereignty today, as I said, I titled this message, The Hands of the Potter, Romans 9, verses 14 through 33. And today we are going to see God's sovereignty in verses 14 through 18. Vessels of wrath and mercy, verses 19 through 24. The beloved and the unbeloved, verses 25 through 29. The righteous and the unrighteous, verses 30 through 33. So let me go ahead and just read the opening verses, verses 14 through 18, and I'll open us in prayer. Romans 9, verses 14 through 18, it says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. Father, help us, Lord, to just 
gain a little bit of understanding of your your sovereignty, Lord, when we ask those questions in life, why is this happening? Perhaps sometimes it's phrased in a way that says, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to my family or this nation? Lord, help us to gain a little better understanding of your, your ways today. Help us, Lord, to realize that in every way. We need to put our faith, our trust in our Savior, Jesus, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we did look at this last week in God's mercy and compassion in Romans nine fourteen, where it says, what shall I say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, the answer Paul is going to give it to us. Certainly not. God is not unrighteous. And Paul presumes another question for his readers here. Because the question itself, is there unrighteousness with God, backs us up to what Paul has just dealt with in the passage, that by God choosing Isaac over Ishmael, choosing Jacob over Esau, does that make God himself unjust? And the answer, Paul says, certainly not. This was a matter of God's sovereignty over Abraham's descendants. And he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. These words that God spoke to Moses here came out of a situation where the children of Israel, as God often called when they were in the wilderness, he called them a stiff-necked people. And God became so upset with the people that he had Moses set his tent outside of the camp When God had been uh, there within the camp, he set the tent, the tabernacle of meeting is what it was known or called, set it outside of the camp. And uh, Moses would go outside of the camp to be with the Lord, to minister with the Lord. When Moses would go to the tent or the tabernacle of meeting, all of Israel would rise up in their tent doors and look toward the door. Uh, that tent of meeting there. And it was at a time when God had separated himself from Israel by having Moses pitch this tent outside of their camp. But at the same time, Moses had this deeper desire to gain a greater understanding of the Lord. He asked the Lord, please show me your glory. And God responded to Moses saying, I will have mercy on whomever I shall have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And God had compassion and mercy upon Moses. He allowed Moses to see what we would say uh, the back of God's glory as God passed by Moses there. He had hid him in the cleft of the rock. He had covered his eyes that he couldn't see as the Lord passed by. But as the Lord went by Moses, God removed his hand from Moses' eyes as the name of the Lord was being proclaimed as he went by. Moses saw the mercy and the compassion of God. And he says in verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Not of him who wills, it refers to the individual like myself or like yourself. It's not by the will that we could say, well, I wish, I desire. 
that I would like to have the mercy or the compassion of God, we might will it, but it's not to do with our capacity. God has made a way for us to obtain this, but it's not by our will, our personal will. Or, he says, of him who runs. It's a Greek word that refers to strive forward with exertion. I don't know if you exert a lot of energy when you run, start breathing a little harder, find that your heart rate increases. That's what's behind this Greek word, that you're striving forward, you're having great effort behind it. Well, you're to strive forward, to have this great effort, seeking God's mercy and compassion. It gives us the idea that it's not by our works that we can obtain these things. These things are given to us by God's mercy and God's mercy alone. Not by anyone's desire or the effort that they might have, but it comes through God's grace alone. So verses 17 through 18, this is where I put the brakes on it last week. I read these verses, didn't go into detail with it. Verse 17, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Speaking to Pharaoh, when Israel had been slaves, had been in Egypt for 400 years, and had then become slaves of the Egyptians, we find in Exodus 9.16 that this verse comes from there, Exodus 9.16, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. It was given to Pharaoh just before the seventh plague was brought upon the nation of Egypt. That seventh plague was that of hail mingled with fire that came upon their land. And God explained to Pharaoh that by showing them his great power in them, his name would be declared throughout all the earth. And we know that God's name was declared as what happened in Egypt and the ten judgments that God sent upon the nation of Egypt at that time when he was judging the gods that they worshipped. That by the time Israel, 40 years later, made it to Jericho and two spies first went into Jericho to spy out the land, that when they came into Jericho and they were hidden by the prostitute Rahab, Rahab said to them, to the two spies of Israel in Joshua 2.11. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did they remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab said, as soon as we heard these things, well, some of the things that they had heard is what God had done to Egypt. And 40 years later, it still caused the hearts of the people to melt within them. They had no strength for battle because they had heard of what God had done to the great nation of Egypt. And truly, the display of God's power in Egypt caused his name to be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And so we find from our perspective it may not seem fair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the Exodus account, we find that 
There are actually three different Hebrew words that are translated as hardened in our English language. And in the three different Hebrew words, it gives us a little greater understanding, especially if you look at the passages and what's going on, that we find that the first Hebrew word, kwazak, it means to fasten upon, to seize, or to bind. And it's found ten times in the Bible. It's almost always connected with God hardening the condition of someone or a nation. In this case, it would be that of Pharaoh. Kushah, another word that is found, it means to be dense, cruel, or grievous. And it's used only one time in the Exodus accounts, in Exodus 9.3, of God hardening the condition of Pharaoh's heart. And quabade, it means to be heavy or grievous or to harden. And it's found six times and always referring to Pharaoh. In Exodus 9.3, we find that God told Moses the end result of Pharaoh's heart. And then from Exodus 4.21 to 14.8, there was an interchange between Quizak and Quibade. Sometimes Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. Sometimes God was making firm or binding up the condition of Pharaoh's heart. But ultimately, Pharaoh first hardened his heart against the Lord and his people. And then the Lord bound up, made firm the condition of Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 1.8, we begin the whole Exodus account with these words. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It tells us that Pharaoh didn't know his own people's history. 400 years earlier, their nation went into a severe famine. And God sent Egypt a savior, actually sent a savior to the world at that time, who was a Jewish man named Joseph. He not only saved Egypt, but saved his own family, the world at that time. But in Exodus 1.8, there arose a new king who did not know Joseph. They had forgotten their own history. Now, we might think, well, it was 400 years. You're bound to forget something. You know, in our own history of the United States, in the formation of the United States, we can tie it all the way back to the pilgrims uh, coming over about 400 years ago, right? And I believe we live in a day and age where we have a people very much like Pharaoh was over Egypt at that time. They have forgotten their own history, the history of God and the work of God in this nation. And it's a dangerous thing when a nation forgets the work of God in their own nation. Pharaoh had forgotten its own nation's history and how God had saved them through Joseph. And so the question we should ask is not so much why Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, but perhaps today the Lord is asking, how's the condition of your own heart? How's the condition of my heart before the Lord today? Have you found that living in this world has had a hardening effect upon your heart? Be careful. God may be binding up, making firm the condition of your heart. Then again, the hardness of this world can actually soften us toward the things of God. And that's a very good place to be. Such hearts 
are ripe for the mercies of God. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, it tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. While God's sovereignty brings judgment to some, it also brings mercy and compassion to others. The potter's mercy and compassion is revealed through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. We next look at verses 19 through 24, and we see vessels of wrath and mercy. In verses 19 through 21, we find God's artistic right. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you that you should reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And again, Paul anticipates his readers. Their response of God showing mercy to some while hardening the hearts of others and they're asking, why does God still find fault for who has resist God's will or who can resist God's will, we might say. We need to remember that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, they willingly went against God's desire for them. By eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they, they died that day. They died spiritually that day. There was spiritual death among them. And because of that, we have inherited that sin nature. Every one of us, a descendant of Adam and Eve. Therefore, we have all been tainted by the inherent sin nature. And yet the potter, he can form our bodies of clay into anything he desires. Vessels of honor and for dishonor. But we have to remember that every one of us, we have started this life as vessels of dishonor because of our inherent sin nature. And so it's only by the grace, only by the mercy of God that we can become vessels of honor. The Greek word for vessels of honor refers to a vessel that is honorable, that of worth. Don't you have perhaps vessels like that? We have them in our house. We have them here at the church. There are some on the shelves behind me, that little uh, aqua-colored vase over there, if you don't know the vase that we have, the water that is in that vase, it came from the Jordan River when we were there visiting. It's not just any water, but it's the water that came from the Jordan River, which, what, is the river where Jesus himself was baptized? I know, I know it's not the same water. They weren't selling us to us. We're not that crazy to think, get the water that was there around Jesus when John the Baptist dipped him in. But it's the same river, which is pretty cool. Now, when I saw the river, looking at that, it looks like, wow, how pristine, how clear. That's not what it looked like. In fact, we saw the river and the big catfish floating around and flipping around in there, and it's thinking, I want to get baptized in that. We did, 
but it didn't look like the most attractive water to be baptized in. But it's a vessel of honor here at the church because of the source of where it came from over in Israel. And so we have those vessels that we set aside. We also have vessels of dishonor. There's a few here throughout the building. There's vessels of dishonor for use for you. You throw things in there to get rid of them. Usually don't go digging around in there. Some people do, but usually we don't. And they're trash cans. They're vessels for dishonor. And because of our inherent sin nature that resulted from the fall, we all began as vessels of dishonor. Therefore, it is only by God's grace alone that we can become vessels of honor, vessels worthy of the use of God. In 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, it tells us, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from the dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. We cleanse ourselves to prepare to be a vessel of honor through the work of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, verses 22 and through 24, God's great riches. What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which have been prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now Paul poses a question concerning God's wrath, his power, his long-suffering, his glory. And to this day, there are many who don't believe in God, nor that God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, God has, in times past, shown his wrath and mercy, his mighty power, through his righteous judgments. And this is something that continues to take place even in our world today. That God shows himself strong among the nations for many if they would just look to know that it is God. We have great storms in this world. Insurance companies have actually deemed some of these storms acts of God. And that takes place. And mankind used to look at these things and, and believe that they were acts of God. God's hand of judgment coming upon our nation. I was thinking back. We forgot our own history. And it made me think of, not in my notes at all, but Pharaoh forgetting Joseph. He was forgetting what God had done in his own nation 400 years earlier. And we can tie back to the pilgrims coming to this nation some 400 years ago, it was not the United States. We know that at that time. But God's hand was moving upon the people of God to come to this nation. They wanted this nation to be a light for all the world to see Jesus Christ. 400 years ago, there was a season when there was a great drought in this nation where the pilgrims we're at at that time, that there was no rain uh, given. They planted, as we plant today in this area, it's called 
dry farming where we're not dependent on water that comes like out in California. If they're going to grow anything, they have to water it because they're not going to get the rain to refresh the soil and to give the nutrients that it needs. But around here, we're dependent upon the rain. A little too much, thank you, Lord, this year. We've had quite a bit of it, but we're dependent upon the rain, the watering of the land. In our own nation, some 400 years ago, the pilgrims went through a period of about 12 weeks where there was no rain, and they knew that if the crops didn't come in, they would be in trouble for the winter time. And so William Bradford, the governor of the pilgrims there, declared a day of prayer and fasting where they stopped everything just to pray and to fast and to wait upon the Lord. And then he writes that there came after that so sweet a rain that it descended down, not hard, not like a summer storm that we have seen around here lately, but he went on to say something like it, it fell so sweetly, so softly that it not only revived our crops, but our hearts as well. They knew that God had done a work. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847 847- Two six five zero six four six. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. <laughs>